My subject today is who are we? Now, of course, in its totality, this is an enormous subject. But to answer it in its fullness, we would have to consider the relationships between men and nature, their natural environment, animate and inanimate, or between men, individual men, and other individuals, and groups, and whole societies, between individuals living now and past time, the cultural traditions of their own society and of other societies. And this, of course, would be a theme for many lectures given by many people over a long period of time. But what I propose to speak about today is a limited field. What are we, what are we, that is to say, in relation to our own minds and bodies? Or, it's seeing that there isn't a single word, let's use it in a hyphenated form, our own mind bodies. What are we in relation to this total organism in which we live? Well, this seems pretty obvious. We go about, we live our life, and this seems to present no problem at all. But actually, this is simply because familiarity has bred a kind of contempt of the problem altogether. The moment we begin thinking about it in any detail, we find ourselves confronted by all kinds of extremely difficult, unanswered and maybe unanswerable questions. Let us take a, a few examples. I say, I wish to raise my hand. Well, I raise it. But who raises it? Who is the I who raises my hand? Certainly it's not exclusively the I who is standing here talking, the I who signs the checks and is, uh, has a history behind him because I haven't the faintest idea how my hand was raised. I, all I know is that I expressed a wish for my hand to be raised, whereupon something within myself set to work, uh, pulled the switches of a most elaborate nervous system, and made 30 or 40 muscles, some of which contract and some of which uh, relax at the same instant, function in perfect harmony so as to produce this extremely simple gesture. And, of course, when we ask ourselves, how does my heart beat? How do we breathe? Uh, how do I digest my food? The, we haven't the faintest idea. The, the whole procedure is left to somebody else. Somebody, incidentally, who is more or less infallible, provided we leave him alone. After all, this is the entire theory of psychosomatic medicine. Most of our diseases, as doctors are coming to see now, are caused by we, ourselves, this personal self, interfering with the functioning of the deeper physiological intelligence, which when it is left in peace and not pushed or deranged by means of negative thought, 
is, as I have said, almost infallible. And then there are still other more curious problems, because one can say, well, these are is what used to be called the, the vegetative soul. This, uh, uh, the vegetative soul is built in. It's something we inherit, which just does this uh, sort of thing like uh, digestion and heart, um, regulating heartbeat automatically. But then we have to reflect that there is also another kind of indwelling self, which functions in a way entirely different from instinctive ways, which performs what I may call acts of ad hoc intelligence, acts which have never been done before in the biological history, and yet which it performs with extraordinary skill without the conscious self being in the least aware of how this is done. And this <coughs> goes on on levels far below the human. Uh, let me quote an example which most of you must have been familiar with at one time or another. The fact of a parrot imitating a human voice or imitating the barking of a dog or imitating laughter. Well, what goes on when a parrot uh, does this sort of thing? Presumably, the parrot has some kind of a conscious life. It hears the voice, it hears the barking or the laughter, and presumably in some sort of way corresponding to our wish to do something, it wishes to imitate this. But then what happens after this? When you come to think of it, it's one of the most extraordinary things you can imagine. Something incomparably more intelligent than the parrot itself sets to work and proceeds to organize a, a series of speech organs, sound organs, which are totally different from those of man. After all, man has teeth, a soft palate, a flat tongue, a parrot has a round tongue, a beak and no teeth. And uh, it proceeds to organize this absolutely different apparatus to reproduce uh, words and laughter so exactly that uh, we are very often deceived by it and think that uh, what is in fact the parrot talking is the person himself making an utterance. Well, the more you reflect on this, the stranger it is, because obviously in the course of evolutionary history, parrots have not been imitating human beings from time immemorial. This is a purely ad hoc piece of intelligent action carried on by some form of intelligence within the parrot, which is quite different, as far as one can see, from the parrot itself. And we see the, the same problem of imitation comes up in relation to very small children, the way that they will imitate, you make a face at a child and it will imitate the face. Well, again, who is doing the imitation? Somebody within the child is organizing, for the first time in its history, this has never happened before, is organizing a whole mass of muscles connected with an elaborate nervous system to pull this muscle up, this muscle down, let one go, let another be tensed, in order to reproduce this grimace which the child has seen on the face of an adult. Well, this also is a, is a most mysterious thing.
So that what we find really is that we as personalities, as what we like to think of ourselves as being, are in fact only a very small part of an immense manifestation of activity, physical and mental, which, um, of which we are simply not aware. Uh, we have some control over this, in as much as uh, some actions being voluntary, we can say, I want this to happen, and somebody else does the work for us. Uh, but um, meanwhile, many actions go on without our having the slightest uh, consciousness of them. And as I said before, uh, these uh, vegetative actions can be grossly interfered with by our undesirable thoughts, our fears, our greeds, our angers, and so on, which may lead to very serious psychophysical derangements. Well, the question then arises, how are we related to this? Why is it that we think of ourselves as only this minute part of a totality far larger than we are? A totality which, according to many philosophers, may actually be coextensive with the total activity of the universe. After all, uh, you go in the West, you go back as far as Leibniz, with his conception that every monad was potentially omniscient. And you, uh, in modern times, you have the same conception in Bergson, the same conception in William James, uh, both of whom were of opinion that the consciousness that we have is simply a kind of filtering down of some form of universal or cosmic consciousness uh, narrow, narrowed down for the purpose of helping us to survive biologically on the surface of this particular planet. And this leads us, of course, to the whole problem of what is the relation between mind and brain. And again, it's, it's quite obvious that there is a relationship. Uh, at one time, it was thought that the thought was just produced by brain. There was a charming phrase used at the end of the 18th century, the brain secretes thought as the liver secretes bile. <laughs> uh, a remark which is, the more you think of it, the sillier it is. Because after all, bile at least is of the same nature as the cells of the liver, whereas thought is of a radically different kind from electrochemical events in the brain. Uh, again, here, both Bergson and James were of opinion that the, the brain is not productive of thought, but acts, so to speak, as a kind of um, reducing valve, preventing us from being too omniscient. Because obviously, if we have to get out of the way of the traffic on Hollywood Boulevard, it's no good being aware of everything that's going on in the universe. We have to be aware of the approaching bus. <laughs> and this is what the brain does for us. It narrows the field down so that we can go through life 
without uh, getting into serious trouble. But as many people have experienced, and as all the, the teachers of the great religions have insisted should be the case, we can and ought uh, to open ourselves up and become what in fact we have always been from the beginning, that is to say, omniscient, or anyhow much more widely knowing in an obscure kind of way, than we normally think we are, that we should realize our identity with what James called cosmic consciousness, and what of course in the East is called the Atman Brahman. That the, the end of life, according in all the great religious traditions, is of course the realization that the finite manifests the infinite in its totality. This is of course a complete paradox when it's uh, stated in words. Nevertheless, uh, it is uh, one of the facts of experience for many people, or for some people at least, and a fact which should be a fact of experience of all. Now, we uh, Let's go on considering a, a little more about this um, problem of uh, how we are related to this uh, deeper self. Uh, the superficial self, the self which we call ourselves, which answers to our names and which uh, goes about its business, has of course a, a terrible habit of imagining itself to be absolute in some sense. I think uh, we may say that this is a, if we look at it from the metaphysical point of view, we can say that this is a mistaken placement of the absolute. We know in an obscure and profound way that uh, in the depth of our being, in what Eckhart calls the ground of our being, we are identical with the divine ground. But what we, and we wish, of course, to realize this identity. But unfortunately, owing to the ignorance in which we live, uh, partly a cultural product, partly a biological and a voluntary product, owing to this ignorance, we tend to look at ourselves, this wretched little self, as being the absolute. Uh, we either worship ourselves as such, or we uh, project some magnified image of the self in an ideal, a goal, uh, in, uh, an ideal or a goal which falls short of the highest ideal or goal, and proceed to worship that. Uh, hence, of course, the appalling dangers of idolatry. When one reads in the Ten Commandments the uh, warning against idolatry, I remember as a, as a boy wondering why such a fuss should be made about this, because after all, who cares whether people take off their hats to a statue or not. But of course it's much profounder than this. Idolatry is in fact the worship of a part, especially the self or a projection of the self, 
as though it were the absolute totality. And as soon as this happens, a general disaster occurs. After all, nothing is clearer uh, in this present mid-century, midpoint of the 19th century, uh, than that the religion of the 20th, uh, did I say 19th century? I beg your pardon, I wish fulfillment. Um, 20th century. Uh, that the, um, the religion of the 20th century is in fact idolatrous nationalism. That uh, there are the nominal religions, Christianity, Mohammedanism, Hinduism, Buddhism, and so on. But in fact, uh, if you in inquire what the actions of people mean, in fact, it's perfectly clear that the real religion is nationalism, that we worship the national state, that in fact we make use of the traditional religions to buttress the national state, uh, and that uh, new religions like communism are also used in the service of this great uh, national idolatry. I mean, actually, Karl Marx would made a grave mistake in underrating nationalism. He seems to have imagined that uh, under the influence of socialist and communist doctrines, the masses of the people would give up nationalism. Not at all. He, he never foresaw what has in fact happened, that communist and socialist doctrines have become the servants of nationalism, the instruments of a particular nationalism, just in the same way in which, I'm afraid, it looks as though orthodox Christianity and orthodox Mohammedanism and orthodox Judaism were fast becoming the instruments of their respective Western, uh, Middle Eastern, or Jewish nationalism. This is one of the grave tragedies and, of course, it confirms the profound wisdom which we find uh, in the Old Testament uh, condemning idolatry as being a thing of unutterable danger. Well, as I say, the, the, the return to the individual, he, of course, uh, worships himself, or if he thinks he's altruistic, he is a, what may be called an alter egoist. He worships some projection of himself. And in this uh, absolutization of himself, he is, I think, uh, assisted by the fact that he is a creature with a language. Now, we can never overestimate the importance of language in the life of human beings. Actually, that which causes us to be human rather than uh, simply another of the apes is our ability to speak. Uh, this has given us the power to uh, create a social heredity so that we can accumulate the knowledge uh, amassed in past times and has given us the power to analyze experience which comes to us in a very chaotic way and to make sense of, us, sense of it for our particular biological and social purposes. Uh, as I say, we, uh, w this is the greatest gift which uh, man has ever received or given himself, the gift of language. And, but, but we have to remember that although language is absolutely essential to us, 
it can also be absolutely fatal because we use it wrongly. In, if we analyze our uh, processes of living, we find that I imagine at least 50% of our life is spent in the universe of language. We are like icebergs uh, floating in a sea of immediate experience but projecting into the air of language. And uh, icebergs, I think, are about uh, nine-tenths or four-fifths underwater and one-fifth above, but I would say we are considerably more than that above. I should say we are the best part of 50%, and I think some people are about 80% above in the world of language, that they, they virtually never have a direct experience, uh, that they, they live entirely in terms of concepts. And, of course, this is inevitable. I mean, when we, we see a rose, we immediately say rose. I mean, we do not say, I see a, a very delicate uh, shading, a, a roundish mass of uh, delicately shaded reds and pinks. We, we immediately pass from the actual experience to the concept. And, of course, this was, uh, I mean, in the history of art, this has happened not infrequently, that uh, painters who have passed from conceptual representation of the world to direct representation have been thought uh, completely insane. Uh, it's difficult for us to imagine now, but for about 30 years the Impressionists were regarded as mad and as being absolutely false to nature, when in point of fact they were the only painters uh, at their period who were absolutely true to nature. They, they painted exactly what they saw and didn't bother about the concepts in terms of which other painters did their seeing and their painting. And, uh, as I say, we, we cannot help living to a very large extent in terms of concepts, and we have to do so, because uh, immediate experience is so chaotic and so immensely rich that in mere self-preservation we have to use the machinery of language to sort out what is of utility for us, or what in any given context uh, is of importance, and uh, to, at the same time, to try to understand, because obviously it is only in terms of language uh, that we can understand what is happening. We make generalizations and we uh, go into higher and higher degrees of abstraction, which permit us to comprehend what we are up to, which we certainly wouldn't if we didn't have language. And in this way, it is uh, an immense boon which we could not possibly do without. But language has its limitations and has its uh, traps. Uh, to start with, uh, language, every language has been developed for specifically biological purposes, in order to help men to cope with life on the surface of this planet. And most languages are remarkably poor in terms, uh, above all, expressing the inner life of man, and also terms which uh, would describe the 
continuousness of experience. It's a very significant fact that if we have to talk about the universe as a continuum, we cannot do so in terms of any of the existing languages. It has to be done in terms of the calculus, a special language invented for the express purpose of talking about the world as a continuum. We ca cannot do it in terms of ordinary language. Well, as the world is a continuum, one sees immediately that uh, uh, ordinary language does deceive us all the time. It is one of the reasons why we have this mania uh, so frequently stressed in all the oriental texts of thinking of ourselves and of every object in the world as being separate and self-subsistent when in fact, of course, they are all part of a universal one. And unfortunately, the nature of language being what it is, we can't get round this uh, uh, without paying a great deal of attention, being uh, carefully, making ourselves <coughs> carefully aware of what <coughs> we are doing and thinking when we use language. This is the only way of um, bypassing the intrinsic defects of language. Well, added to the intrinsic defects, there are all kinds of um, traps which we lead ourselves into by taking language too seriously. This, of course, we've been constantly warned against this, and Paul is full of it. Uh, he speaks about the newness of the spirit, the oldness of the letter, the uh, letter killeth, the spirit giveth life. And this, of course, is absolutely true. If we take the letter too seriously, we actually prevent ourselves from having uh, certain types of direct experience which uh, St. Paul was describing uh, in terms of the word spirit. Uh, so that what we have to do is to be profoundly aware of, uh, of the language we're using, uh, not to mistake the word for the thing. In, in the terms of Zen Buddhism, we have to be constantly aware that the finger which points at the moon is not the moon. Uh, in general, we think that the pointing finger, the word, is the thing we point at. And of course, if you look at almost any uh, literature, philosophy or religion, you will find this again and again, this uh, obsession with words as though they were things, this mania for, after all, in reality, Words are simply the signs of things. But for many people, many people treat things as though they were the signs and illustrations of words. When they see a thing, they immediately think of it as just being an illustration of a verbal category, uh, which of course is absolutely fatal again, because this is not the case. And yet, we cannot do without words. We have to the whole of life is, after all, a process of walking on a tightrope. If you don't fall one way, you fall on the other, and each way is equally bad. We can't do without language, and yet if we take language too seriously, we're in an extremely bad way, and we somehow have to keep going on this knife edge. Every action of life is a knife edge, and being aware of the dangers, 
and uh, doing our best to keep out of it. Well, uh, I think um, some uh, progress has been made in recent years uh, in the analysis of language. I mean, this is actually one of the uh, great uh, pieces of uh, intellectual progress of the last 50 years, I would say, the, uh, the linguistic analysis, the um, semantics which became extremely popular at one time, and then the... Um, uh, logical positivists and so on, who have done a very valuable work and the, uh, the whole of the new development of logic since uh, Boole and Peano and Russell. All this is, is of immense importance because it does uh, permit anybody who wishes to do so uh, to understand the pitfalls which lie within this uh, necessary and uh, vital medium of language. Of course, the logical positivists uh, went a great deal too far. I mean, they got to a point of saying that if you couldn't, in terms of language, uh, make a sentence which was uh, logically foolproof, then the uh, question asked was meaningless. But this is not true. This is actually a way, very often, of evading the question. There are plenty of questions which it may be one can never frame in terms of a sentence which shall be logically correct and make linguistic sense. I mean, take a question like, is the soul immortal? Well, I'm quite sure that a logical positivist would have no difficulty in saying that these words are perfectly meaningless. Uh, but at the same time, the question still has a significance, even though we cannot frame it in any form of words which are available to us, in such a way that it will make logical sense. And I do think that the logical positivists have evaded many difficulties simply by saying that questions which in fact have, uh, have a meaning have no meaning because they have no meaning merely in terms of words. They have a meaning on another level. And the, one of the problems, of course, of, uh, of any kind of uh, spiritual or intellectual or moral development is to get beyond the merely verbal level uh, to this, um, this uh, level of immediate experience. We have again to combine these two things, to walk on this tightrope, to have the experience, to be able to analyze it in terms of language, at the same time to be able to drop the language and go on into the experience. It, it is a very, very delicate and difficult task as, of course, every aspect of human life is delicate and difficult. So we must briefly consider contemporary education, in fact education as it's always been as far as I can see, which is of course predominantly verbal. Children are taught an enormous number of things in terms of words, all teaching, practically all teaching is verbal, and I mean, if you look, for example, at what are called the liberal arts, well, uh, the liberal arts are a little better than they were in the Middle Ages, but in the Middle Ages, the liberal arts were entirely verbal. Uh, the only one of the liberal arts which was not verbal, well, there were two, I beg your pardon. One was astronomy and the other was music. There was some uh, faint attempt to look at the outside world in astronomy. And even in music, it wasn't too much of a, a non-verbal, because music was regarded as a science and not as a pleasure. And it was entirely the theory of music that was taught. And uh, 
Fortunately, of course, in the Middle Ages, there were a number of uh, mitigations to this. I mean, the life was so extremely and so often very unpleasantly close to nature that one couldn't be wholly verbal. I mean, the amount of cold and dirt and, uh, and wild animals and so on kept people on their toes in a way which in a modern city they're not. I mean, we can live in a modern city as though we were living in a kind of paradise of words or in those embodiments of words which are machines and gadgets. And this, I think, is a very unwholesome situation. Well, as I say, most education is predominantly verbal and suffers, therefore, from the defects which uh, the great religious teachers like St. Paul have uh, pointed out, that uh, the letter killeth, it, it is a dead, stultifying and dangerous thing. Uh, and one of the strangest uh, facts, I think, about education is that although for hundreds of years we've been talking about mens sana in corpore sano, the healthy mind in the healthy body, we really haven't paid any serious attention to the problem of training the mind-body, the instrument, which has to do the learning, which has to do the living. We, we give children compulsory games and little drill and so on, but this really doesn't amount in any sense to a training of the mind-body. We pour this verbal stuff into them, without in any way preparing the uh, organism which is given this pabulum, without preparing it uh, for life or for understanding its position in the world, who it is, uh, where it stands, how it's related to the universe. This is one of the oddest things, and we don't even prepare the child to have any proper relation with its own mind-body. And this is all the more remarkable because uh, Professor Dewey, who's called the prophet of, of uh, modern education, was extremely preoccupied with this problem. I'll briefly touch on this because I do think it's very important. Uh, Dewey had a first-hand knowledge of um, the work of F.M. Alexander, who is a an Australian who's still alive, he's in his 80s now, uh, who developed this uh, remarkable uh, technique uh, by which he showed that the proper mental and physical functioning could not take place unless there was a certain normal and natural relationship between the trunk and the neck and head. And uh, Dewey speaks of this in several passages. He said that the Alexander's methods of training stand to education in general, as education in general stands to ordinary life, where which shows the enormous importance he attached to it. And yet, although literally millions of teachers now look up to Dewey as the great prophet, practically none that I know of have ever paid the smallest attention to this fact, which uh, uh, to this method, which Dewey regarded as of capital importance. I think one of the reasons is uh, for this is that uh, this particular kind of, of teaching doesn't fall into any academic pigeonhole. This is one of the great problems of 
of educational and academic life. Everything takes place in a pigeonhole. And when you get a thing like uh, the Alexander work, or indeed like any system of uh, general synthesis, who, who looks after it? It's neither biology, nor psychology, nor sociology, nor history, nor anything. Therefore, it doesn't exist. <laughs> and, uh, what is obviously needed in uh, academic institutions now, I mean, the pigeonholes must be there because we can't avoid the specialization. But what we do need is a few people who run about on the woodwork between the pigeonholes <laughs> and uh, peep into all of them and see what can be done, and who are not close to disciplines which don't happen to fit into any of the categories uh, considered as valid uh, by the present uh, educational system. Uh, and uh, I don't think I can go into any other um, examples of the of methods of, of training the mind-body, but uh, I, can, I think I can risk a generalization here. And many of such methods, of course, have been empirically devised for particular purposes. And if you examine them all, you will find that they are all illustrations of one single principle which is that in some way, we're back again at the paradox, in some way we have to combine relaxation with activity. Take the piano teacher, for example. You always says, relax, relax. Well, how can you relax while your fingers are rushing over the keys? But they have to relax. Uh, the singing teacher says exactly the same thing. The golf pro says exactly the same thing. The, the tennis pro, and we get in, across into the realm of, um, of spiritual exercises. The person who teaches mental prayer says exactly the same thing. We have somehow to combine relaxation with activity. Well, I think if we take the analysis one stage further, going back to the, what we said originally about the, the personal conscious self being a kind of small island in the midst of an enormous uh, area of consciousness. What has to be relaxed is the personal self, the self that tries too hard, that thinks it, know thinks it knows what's what, that uses language. This has to be relaxed in order that the powers, these multiple powers uh, at work within the deeper and wider self may come through and uh, function as they should. Uh, in all psychophysical skills, we have this um, curious fact of the law of reversed effort. The harder we try, the worse we do the thing. And we have, therefore, always to learn this paradoxical art of combining relaxation, maximum relaxation of the surface self, with the maximum activity of the lower selves, or higher selves, whichever you like it, the, the, the not-selves, which, with, with, which we carry about with us, and which uh, give, us our, uh, give us our being, actually. And this, as I say, is the principle which every one of these empirical discoveries in every field of psychophysical skill quite clearly illustrates. We have to learn, so to speak, 
to get out of our own light. Because with our personal self, this idolatrously worshipped self, we are continuously standing in the light of this wider self, this, this not-self, if you like, which is associated with us and which uh, uh, this standing in the light prevents, we eclipse the, uh, the, this illumination from within. And the whole point in all the activities of life, from the simplest uh, physical activities to the highest intellectual and spiritual activities, our whole effort must be to get out of our own light. Yet we mustn't abdicate our personal conscious self. I mean, here again we're up against a paradox and a tightrope. Uh, we, have, we can't let go and just go to sleep and hope this will happen. We have somehow to permit this to come up and yet to organize it with the, the uh, surface conscious mind uh, in a way which shall be useful to ourselves and to others. Uh, it is, uh, it's what in theological terms is called cooperating with grace. And uh, don't let's forget grace exists on every level. I mean, there is what may be called animal grace, which is the grace of uh, normal functioning, of perfect health, which we're constantly interfering with, hence all the psychosomatic disorders, where we must cooperate with this grace. We, there are various things which can be done to cooperate with it. Similarly, we must cooperate with what may be called intellectual grace. There are, after all, as everybody who has worked in any field knows quite well, there are are hunches and inspirations which come through uh, in the greatest uh, works of art. Uh, these are the inspirations of genius. But uh, as has been remarked, genius is uh, both inspiration and perspiration. The, the, you have to work at these things, otherwise they, they are no good. And to anybody who wants to read a most illuminating uh, uh, study of this problem, I recommend the uh, F.W.H. Myers's Human Personality, which I'm glad to say has at last been reprinted. The chapter on genius there is of first-rate importance, and he illustrates very clearly by many examples of this necessary collaboration with what may be called intellectual grace. Well, and then above that, uh, we have to use these special metaphors, is what may be called spiritual grace, is the, the awareness uh, of the uh, total universal consciousness, the awareness of God, the awareness that the, that the finite is in some sort uh, a manifestation of the total infinite. And again we have to get out of the way and to uneclipse ourselves to permit the light to come through and uh, these are, uh, as I say, seem to me to be all uh, extremely important facets of education which have been uh, wholly neglected. I, I don't think that in ordinary schools you could uh, uh, teach uh, what are called spiritual exercises, but you could certainly teach uh, children how to use themselves in this relaxedly active way, how to uh, perform these psychophysical skills without uh, the frightful 
burden of overcoming the law of reversed effort, you could probably teach them too how to greatly increase their um, uh, perceptive powers. So this has been done, for example, in, a, uh, in the most remarkable way by Professor Renshaw at the University of Ohio, who has uh, immensely increased both the powers of perception and the powers of memory by applying Gestalt psychology in a perfectly sensible and simple way. Uh, why children are not taught this, one cannot imagine. It's just, uh, as I say, it has, doesn't happen to have entered into any of the academic categories and so has never been brought into the general system. Well, now we come to the uh, final problem, the, the problem of um, becoming aware of um, what James called the cosmic consciousness of the, of the Atman Brahman, of the unifying principle. I mean, in the Chinese conception, the universe is perceived as this, uh, the yin and the yang, the negative and the positive principles, which are equally valid in the world. The, um, I'll probably have it in the Indian philosophy too, the god of the goddess of uh, of creation is also the goddess of destruction. The negative is correlative to the positive. But the, the, the two are reconciled then in this fundamental principle, the Tao. And uh, this, uh, I think, is at the basis of all mystical religion. You, uh, you see it very clearly in the writings of Eckhart, uh, just as you do in the Oriental philosophy. And uh, the problem, the practical problem arises, how do we get ourselves into a position where we can collaborate with grace? We can, how can we open ourselves up to the grace of seeing God, to use Eckhart's words, Seeing God with the same eye that God sees us. How do we do this? Well, this of course is a, an immense uh, problem. And um, I think uh, innumerable ways of, uh, have been um, developed uh, to help people to achieve uh, this final end of man. Uh, some are satisfactory, uh, others, it seems to me, uh, are not. Uh, on general principles, I would say that the means employed for this purpose should resemble the end envisaged. For example, the, the, the end envisaged is a form of consciousness entirely free from the partiality of um, individual ego consciousness. We are partial, of course. We, we see the world in a partial way because we see ourselves as absolutely distinct and virtually divine and absolute as ourselves. And uh, this is, of course, a perfectly partial and perfectly untrue way of looking at the universe. I mean, if I'm desperately preoccupied with myself, uh, it means that I am ignoring the immense majority of all the events in the universe. Naturally, we can't know all the events in the universe, but we, 
we must be aware that the, this totality of things is going on and that this uh, partial view uh, is, of course, uh, a totally warped and self-stratifying view. I mean, we, we try to help ourselves in this way, but he that uh, finds his life shall lose it, and he who loses his life shall find it. Uh, the, all these uh, paradoxical sayings which keep cropping up in, in every religion refer to this same thing, this necessity of getting rid of the essentially partial, uh, limited, ego-centered view of the world. And as I say, I, I think in order to, uh, to cultivate uh, this point of view, to, I mean, two things are necessary. First of all, we must obviously have an intellectual preparation. It's no good saying you can uh, work without any theology at all. You have to have some theology, and it's rather important it should be correct. Uh, and uh, the, I think this basic, uh, what may be called the basic theology, of the identity of the finite with the infinite, the, the, the total manifestation of the infinite in the finite, the, the identity of samsara and nirvana, uh, the, uh, the, the one being expressed totally in every particular aspect of the many, this uh, is, uh, is the end, and this we have to seems to me we have to approach through, uh, first of all, a cultivation of the, uh, of the doctrine, uh, a, a rumination of this doctrine, which is a doctrine to many people not familiar, but I think we have to keep ourselves uh, continually remembering that this is the case. We have to remind ourselves, in the very beautiful words of Matthew Arnold, uh, where he says that uh, to God, Every minute in its race, crowd as we will its neutral space, is but the quiet watershed whence equally the seas of life and death are fed. That minutes in themselves are essentially neutral, that both the positive and the negative, both life and death go on in it, that uh, this uh, uh, God sends his rain upon the just and the unjust, that there is a, an essentially equal view of the world. Although, naturally, as biological creatures, we cannot accept our own destruction, we have to, as intellectual creatures, to admit that the negative powers have exactly the same right to existence as the positive powers. Although, of course, again, another paradox, we have to do our best to preserve the positive powers in every way we can, the positive aspects of the world. Uh, but intellectually, we must be aware that every moment is a quiet watershed whence equally the seas of life and death are fed. And this is a, a, a sort of reminder we have to go on making. Of course, uh, it won't uh, necessarily console us in moments of uh, grief or crisis, uh, but it's a preparation. It, it prepares the ground for uh, what is the final end, this, uh, this seeing of the world with the impartial eye of uh, the divine intelligence.
Well, then there is the, the problem of uh, particular uh, spiritual exercises. Well, this is a very difficult uh, problem. Uh, my own feeling is that uh, in some systems of spiritual exercises, too much emphasis has been laid on the use of the imagination and of concentration. I mean, a, a particular form is imagined, or even uh, in the higher forms of meditation, a formlessness is imagined. But this is the imposition of something upon the natural process of life. I mean, this is actually in an attempt to get to a non-dualistic uh, outlook. It is actually an assertion of dualism. I mean, that somebody is imposing this upon the flow of life. And uh, again, I would think even that these intense practices of concentration, although they may produce very remarkable psychical results, are not the best way of getting to this entirely impartial view, because again, this is a, a suppression of an enormous area of life. I mean, that you are suppressing with one part of your mind something which is going on in another part of the mind. And it has always seemed to me, I may be wrong, that the most uh, valuable spiritual exercise is to permit thoughts to come, the, these often pointless and foolish thoughts which occur, but just to say, you do what you like, but uh, I will pay attention to you. And if one does this, this is a very curious uh, phenomenon, if one pays attention to the irrelevances which keep cropping up in the mind, the irrelevances stop of themselves for a short time. And for a moment you do get this um, sense of, of a, a consciousness of consciousness, uh, an awareness of just being aware without any particular content, and uh, which this is, of course, not enlightenment or anything like it, but it, it is, I think, a valuable preparation uh, which will permit this impartial view of the world uh, to be realized in its own good time. We cannot, of course, press this thing. Nothing that we can do will actually produce this thing. All we can do is to get out of our own light to use our will to will ourselves away. I mean, Eckhart has again another curious remark. He says, God's, God and God's will are one. I and my will are two. And uh, we have somehow to use our will to get rid of our will in order to, uh, to uh, collaborate with this uh, uh, this totality of the universe, to, to accept uh, events as they come uh, in this impartial spirit, yet uh, doing everything we can uh, to promote the, the positive side of life. Well, I think I'd better draw this to a close now, where I could go on talking about this subject, because it's immense for a very long time, even about this limited area of the, the subject I've chosen. One could go on talking a very long time. But I think I've said enough to 
make it clear that, uh, that the principles, at any, any rate, are simple, that, uh, that we, as we think of ourselves, are a very small part, even of the physiological and uh, subconscious life immediately available to us, that we don't control our bodies, we, uh, we just, and we don't even control our thoughts. We, after all, the, um, uh, the popular language is very clear on that uh, subject. We say, a thought came to me, this flashed upon me. We don't say, I invented this thought. We accept what comes to us. And we have to learn how to take what is given by something which is not ourselves in any sense that we think of ourselves. And this, as I say, applies to every level of activity from the simplest uh, physiological uh, acts to, the, to acts of psychophysical skill going up to the most complicated ones like playing the violin and the playing the piano and so on. And finally, it's exactly the same principle which holds good in the religious life where the aim is somehow to get out of the light, get out of what the Quakers call the inner light. We have to get out of the inner light and let it shine. Uh, and we, most of our lives, of course, are spent in eclipsing this light with all possible means at our disposal. Uh, and the, the methods of doing this, I mean, they, they're fairly clear. I mean, we have to, to live a life um, where with the minimum of negative emotions, the minimum of malice, uh, the, the obvious uh, moral commandments have to be fulfilled. And then there is this intellectual preparation of perceiving that the nature of the universe is such that our pretensions to be absolute and separate are ridiculous, not only ridiculous but fatal. We have to remember this all the time, as often as we can. And I think we have to do this, um, this preparation of, uh, in one way or another, preparing the mind uh, to accept this uprush, or downrush, whichever you like to call it, of the greater not-self, which you can also spell as self with a large S, the Atman Brahman. This, I think, is as much as I can say at the present time. Now, the gentleman, um, he used to talk about the gentleman having an idea of what he meant. Now, uh, didn't you have an idea of what you meant uh, when you, in your talk, spoke about uh, this, uh, having certain people that devote themselves to running around the woodwork and <laughs> Seeing what uh, the linking together the different specialties and trying to uh, develop a, a unitary uh, approach. I wonder if you could uh, expand uh, what must be in your mind about that and possibly offer some uh, way yeah, I mean, that might be realized. There, there have been, of course, cases of this. I mean, take the. Uh, development of the ecology, for example, as a discipline in biology. I mean, this is actually a thing on the borderland of many different disciplines, which now, I'm glad to say, is a 
is a discipline of its own and uh, is of immense, uh, an immensely fruitful idea. I mean, I would regard ecology as one of the most uh, fruitful of modern ideas. And in this way, I would think that a number of, uh, of things could be brought together. I mean, uh, sociology, I should think, could be considerably <coughs> Uh, enlivened and, and uh, intensified by bringing in certain psychological and religious factors more than has been done now. And then this whole this whole question of, I mean, the training, say, of the, of the psychophysical organism, it, uh, it involves theoretical considerations of physiology, psychology, even sociology and metaphysics, perhaps. Uh, and, uh, I mean, you have to have the theoretical side and you have then to have a kind of physiotherapy and, uh, and actual uh, gymnastic training, which would involve something, again, quite different. And that seems to me there is no, uh, no place for a thing like that, unfortunately. Mr. Huxley, uh, what about the uh what about the sublimation of things that we would escape? Uh, you mean the sublimation of violence and things like of that? things that we would escape, not necessarily physical. Our escapes, we believe, are usually mental. But I'm speaking of the sublimation of the things that we would escape from. Well, an example is uh, easier. What, uh, what sort of... Uh, I was looking for the example from you. You <laughs> <laughs> well, must have it in your mind. I don't have it in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll try to put it a bit more clearly. That's possible. Uh, yeah, we seem to be... Uh, we seem to be uh, inflicted with various things that affect us unpleasantly. Mm. And we would, if we can, get away from those things. Mm. And our escape is usually of a mental nature. Mm. We don't actually escape. We just voluntarily depart from to come mm. back to again. Now when I use the term celebration, I speak in the term, uh, in the sense of Freud, at very young, I intended the term to sublimate to change the aspect or the mental image of it, or to change the mental image of the thing that we would escape from. Yeah, I mean, uh, I see the point, but uh, I mean, there are obviously forms of compensation up some compensatory images, and then, then I suppose there are changes in attitude. Where, um, it should be ideally possible, clearly, if one was sufficiently impartial about oneself, not to regard as, uh, as unmitigated evils a number of things that we do so regard. This is an ideal condition, as you say. Uh, how do you react to the idea that uh, 
There's a talk given here once by Swami Prabhupada called God is All. Now, uh, how would you react to the uh, idea of taking the principle of the allness and the oneness of God as being a point of departure for uh, unifying the various fields of knowledge and various faculties. In other words, if we can begin to interpret not only who we are, but uh, what the chair is and what uh, uh, Sirius is, uh, that is the star of Sirius and the Andromeda of the next galaxy, from the standpoint that it's a uh, manifestation or aspect of uh, the one, of the divine, uh, would we not then have the proper fundamental uh, frame of reference from which to begin to unify? Yeah, of course, uh, the danger of such an um, over-comprehensive frame of reference, I mean, this may be the ultimate frame of reference, but the difficulty with such a frame of reference is it's exceedingly difficult to do anything with it in certain cases. I mean, you, it seems to me you have to to start with smaller areas of unification because if you, have, if you start immediately with the ultimate well then it's exceedingly difficult to see how you're going to apply this in a given case whereas if you start at an earlier level I mean then you can fit this into a general metaphysical theory I mean this is the it's the the, it's the difference between uh, theoretical and applied science, pure science and applied science. I mean, there's pure metaphysics and then there's may, what may be called applied metaphysics, which I would say is uh, mystical practices and religion and so on. Uh, but the, the pure metaphysics taken as such can't do very much for you. I mean, it's not an, it's to use the word which is so frequently used in modern physics, it's not an operational conception, although it's a, it probably may have a very great value uh, on a, a theoretical basis. You then have to find uh, a field in which you can apply these ideas and necessarily apply it on a smaller scale and, uh, and see how it fits and works back into the original conception. I mean, I, I think you're concept is, is correct, but I mean, I don't know what you could quite do with it. Uh, that's the point. I mean, you'd have to start on a smaller scale. Maybe that begs the question, uh, maybe we uh, have been looking what to do with something like that when the, uh, uh, when that isn't the uh, answer to begin with. Well, I mean, we have to know, of course, but I mean, can you know without doing? I mean, after all, Theoretically, you can say that uh, God is the one, but as Swamiji has been talking here for some time, I was in order to realize this fact, there are many things you must do. I mean, that the, that the nature of your knowing depends upon the nature of your being, and the nature of your being depends in some measure, at least, on the nature of your doing, and the nature of your thinking. So that uh, you can't uh, separate them. That uh, you have to have the uh, have to have some point from which these extremely wide generalizations can come down and be handled in some way or other. I mean, actually, processes of 
meditation may be described as methods of handling uh, an immensely wide metaphysical conception which in itself can't do one much good because it's essentially a theoretical conception. Uh, do you think that the development of a completely new language based on this basic premise of the oneness and allness of God that in, in short be the root term of every of every word, of every concept, uh, in which uh, the whole mass of uh, terminology would be retranslated uh, into uh, what we might call uh, the aim would be to translate it into a divine language. How does God think? What what language does God use in His thoughts? Well, uh, we're going to manifest divinity in His language. Well, it would be an extraordinarily interesting experiment. <laughs> I don't think everybody will talk it, but I mean, I think you will end a few pages written in this, which would be extremely enlightening. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, there's no question that uh, you can do the most... Uh, it is fascinatingly interesting to see what can be done in terms of an entirely different type of language.